Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast about how to get better faster. I'm Ravi Gupta, and we have a bit of a series going on about best practices for parenting. And that makes me particularly excited to welcome our guest today, Ron Lieber, who is the Your Money columnist for the New York Times. And he writes about everything from retirement savings to college tuition and credit reports and taxes. And he has a series of works that I think are going to be really fascinating to our audience. Uh, one book, which is called The Opposite of Spoiled, which is all about how to raise kids who, as the title suggests, aren't spoiled, who have like a healthy relationship to money. And then there's a new book that he's written a couple years ago called The Price You Pay for College, which is all about the economics of college and the hidden costs, the hidden discounts, and really it can be a how-to guide. And he's followed that up with a course on Merit Aid, and you could find that course on meritaidcourse.com, if I'm getting that right, Ron. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Ron, you wrote this book called The Opposite of Spoiled, and before we even talk about like the prescriptions that you have here, you know, what motivated you to write this book? Like, Do you think we have a, a spoiled kid problem here in this country? That's a leading question, if there ever was one. I mean, it depends on how you define spoiled. I guess spoiled kids you know, don't have many responsibilities. They sort of think they have it coming, right? They're entitled, and their parents don't really provide much in the way of rules. And there's not a whole lot of conversation in that household about money and where it comes from and what it's good for and how to think about it. And I guess my concern just personally was that I was going to get it wrong. You know, I played Dr. Money in the newspaper at the New York Times and, you know, I was about to embark on parenting or I had embarked on parenting with my first one. And this was a kid who had a lot of questions about money. You know, she sort of fixed us with the gaze at one point when she was three and demanded to know why we didn't have a summer house. <laughs> right. And it's like, we, we weren't talking about summer houses. We weren't sure where she learned that phrase, but I was sort of frozen in place. And, but that, you know, that wasn't good enough, right? She, she was asking actually a serious question about something that she had determined that other people had that we did not have. And she wanted to know why. And that's a perfectly reasonable question. And I did not have the faintest idea how to answer it. And so it all kind of spooled out from there. All these people with all of these kids with all of these questions. And many of us had parents who did not talk to us about money. So I wanted to help people figure out how and connect those conversations to the values that we all hold dear. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, depending on your generation, I think my mom's generation kind of came of age with the growth of the credit card industry. And so I think a lot of our parents in my age cohort, at least I, this, I, this could be true of you. I, I don't know um, if we're the same age or not, is they were bad with money. Like my, my parents were terrible with money. Like I can't even think of a single money conversation I had with my parents that was useful. And actually now most of my money conversations with my parents are me helping them navigate their mistakes <laughs> with money, if that makes any sense. It's complicated, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty rare that somebody comes of age and knows, you know, when they're in the single digits or even when they're in their teens, that their parents are doing it badly, right? Now, now that's something different. You can take that sentence, you can remove the it, right? My parent or parents are doing badly, Right. I, I, a kid might think that because a parent or parents have lost their jobs or they're just not earning very much no matter how, how they try. So maybe they are 
doing badly economically, but doing it badly is something else entirely. Doing it badly is getting into debt when they don't need to. It's allowing people to take advantage of them. It's sending the wrong messages to their children. So it's interesting that you make that distinction. It's rare that kids figure it out relatively young. And I've actually never had anybody connected directly to you know, the coming of age of the credit card industry. That's a super interesting theory and thesis, right? Because if you lose yourself, you know, to the kinds of debt in, you know, the 80s or 90s that often didn't come with much underwriting, you know, as a grown up, you could dig yourself a really big hole and your children may well be witnessing that firsthand and understanding exactly what's going wrong and are probably learning some lessons about how to do it and how not to do it. Yeah, it's funny, you know, because your your book is really about how to have money conversations. And I can't remember which show I was listening to. I was listening to some podcasts recently where some billionaire was on a podcast and and they, he was having a conversation and was asked, like, how do you raise kids who aren't spoiled? And his simple answer was, don't give them a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> that was his answer. He was like, he's like, that's the only foolproof answer. What do you think about that answer? I mean, that's certainly an approach that is not a whole approach or a full strategy that could be a place to start from. But the fact of the matter is, is that just because kids or teenagers do not have access to an above average amount of funds doesn't mean that you're like imprinting or imparting the kinds of values that you can grow and shape when you have good and longstanding and ongoing conversations about money. You, You know, what does it mean if that billionaire treats the people who work for her or him in a terrible fashion. What are you teaching your kids if they fly private and they're allowed to post pictures of themselves on the jet on social media, right? You know, there's all these ways in which you can behave as a grown-up that either models behavior or brings kids in on, you know, the behavior that may not actually help in the long term or in the short term for that matter. And so, I mean, you place a lot of emphasis on having the right kinds of conversations about money at various points in a kid's development. How early do you start? Like, you know, because the concept of money is something that, you know, obviously is not something innate to a kid. Like it's something that they either pick up on or has to be explained to them at some critical point in their life. Yeah. So I think sometimes, maybe even in the majority of cases, you as a parent do not get to choose because the questions just start coming fast and furious, you know, as they did for me with our three-year-old, or maybe around the age of, you know, five or six, when they can start to, you know, count and make some sense of what things cost, they're going to be asking for things. And maybe they're asking for things all the time. And so you've got to give them some kind of framework other than no, or because I said so, you know, that helps them understand, you know, and begin to make choices, right? And, and trade-offs and understand value. And so, you know, what I encourage parents to do round about, you know, the kindergarten years is to, you know, start sort of a basic allowance program, right? Three jars, 
maybe you get a you know a dollar a week for every year you've been alive right so the 6 year olds get 6 bucks a week and you divide it between spend and save and give you know the give is kind of obvious it's for giving money away to people who need it more than you or organizations you know save is some sort of medium to long term goal you don't get to spend it each week and then the spend jar is for purchases that are, uh, you know, sort of, sort of spontaneous, right? And you place some constraints on what they can save for or what spend on, maybe um, even some constraints on, you know, how they give the money away. But that begins to create a situation and the framework for conversations so that, you know, every time they ask for something, uh, you could say, okay, well, you know, how much money do you have in the spend jar? Oh, would you like to save for that? Oh, you're interested in this issue or you really love this place, you know, the zoo or the aquarium or your nursery school or your church. Maybe this is a good place for you to hand out some of your give money, right? And then the conversations flow from there and they get more interesting as the kids get older. And for that, would you make the decisions of how they allocate as a percentage of savings versus spend and all that? Or do you let the kids decide that? Or is there some middle ground where they have training wheels and you kind of allocate it for a period of time and then you let them start to decide? Yeah. So it's always more fun, more interesting just for the parent, right? To, to ask the open-ended question, right? Because then you can kind of see the wheels turning. So, you know, you can save them. Okay, well, there's going to be $6 a week. How do you think we should divide it up? Right. And like maybe your family has taken the giving pledge and what you want with allowance is for your kids to give away 99% of the allowance. Right. Or, you know, maybe you're going to have them save more than they give or spend because yours is a family that is going to need the kid to help pay for college, in which case, you know, you want the save jar to start growing early. So, you know, it's fun to see what the kids have to say, but, you know, you could also dictate the terms yourself. I don't think there's a right answer for that one. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And and how early would you introduce the concept of interest in the savings jar? Sure. I mean, I think they need to be mathable enough to sort of understand what's happening. And I would use a, you know, super enhanced rate of, you know, interest or, or matching funds even just to make the math relatively easy to do. You know, hopefully it's not too many more dollars out of your pocket to say, hey, when you get to $50 in the save jar, right, if you manage to wait that long, I or we will throw another $50 at you, right? And you can do the same thing with interest, right? You could pay them 10% a year or 100% a year or something like that. You know, and that may feel artificial or strange, but the fact of the matter is that for we grownups, there are all sorts of institutional and governmental bonuses that we get, right? You know, when you put money in a retirement savings account as a grown-up, you get some sort of a tax break. And sometimes if you have an employer who has a retirement fund, they'll match some of your contributions. So there's nothing artificial or weird about, you know, throwing extra money at the kids. It helps to incentivize the kind of behavior that you're going to want them to exhibit when they are out from under your roof. And the sooner they learn those habits, the better off they are. I mean, I think most of us know now that if you start saving for retirement, say, like your first year out of college or your first year in the workforce, and you do that for the next 40 or 50 years until you retire, you're going to end up with like double the money, like way, way more than somebody who starts 
when they're 30 instead of 20 or 35 instead of 22. And so if your kids like go out into the world, knowing how to do that, and it's just become a habit, they'll hopefully be able to start right at the very beginning. And they won't learn, you know, the sort of painful lessons that you might learn when they're too late, if you start too late. And, you know, in researching this book, or just writing your column, you know, what are some of the more provocative and interesting choices you've you've either seen or heard from parents that they've made where you're like, whoa, that actually that's a controversial choice. Yeah. I mean I guess my favorite one and you know I like it because it's both provocative and it involves the the biggest dollar amount of all is that, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to write the opposite of spoiled and and the reason why I sort of ended it, so to speak, at the age of like 16 or 17, is that, you know, all of a sudden, without anybody really looking, you know, the most expensive college in America, you know, without any discounts or financial aid, has like started to come close to, you know, crossing the $400,000 mark for four years. I mean, this is just insane, right? And college can cost, you know, zero to $400,000 now. This may well be the most impactful decision, you know, your family ever makes. It's of enormous consequence to your kid. They've got a front row seat for all of this. And they're, you know, at least partially in the driver's seat in terms of decision-making, depending, you know, on your household. And we've got to get them ready, right, to make this decision. So that's, you know, one of the reasons to start talking to your kids about this stuff, you know, when they're six, so they've got like a decade behind them. So a family that I know of, actually, the parents were colleagues of mine a while back, they were sort of, you know, upper middle class. They were not going to be able to write a bunch of $400,000 checks for their four kids. So they said to them at the beginning of eighth grade, you are going to be responsible for the first semester of your tuition, not room and board, but tuition. This one's on you, right? And we expect that you will earn the money and have it all ready to go so that you don't have to borrow by the time you start college. So that effectively gave them five years, right? Eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, each of those summers and, you know, whatever they wanted to do during the school year. So these kids, you know, were out mopping floors and cleaning toilets in the park. And, you know, they all got their lifeguard credentials, you know, the point at which they were eligible for that. And, you know, they worked 60 or 80 hour weeks in the summer. And, you know, some of them did babysitting and other stuff during the year. And, you know, the concern among parents, particularly, you know, parents in the upper middle class and above these days, is that, well, you know, that that time, that summertime, that's for enrichment, right? That, that's for things that will enhance your ability to get into college. You know, kids shouldn't spend their time scrubbing toilets. Well, these kids went to Harvard, MIT, Northwestern College of Charleston. So, you know, they did all right. Yeah. Uh, the college admissions gods were not all that unhappy. And it turns out there are not a lot of, you know, affluent kids who are working 80 hours a week. And maybe scrubbing toilets actually distinguishes you from teenagers who are going on, you know, service trips to the Caribbean or whatever else, yes. you know, doing fake internships. Yeah. I'm really into that. And I think I've long argued on this podcast and other podcasts that we have that if to the extent colleges are taking into account extracurricular activities and, you know, this sort of resume padding, I always said like a kid who 
works at McDonald's after school and still manages good grades is more interesting to me than the kid who plays violin after school and manages good grades. Because, you know, although the violin is impressive, it's almost always a reflection of what the parent is pushing the kid to do. And it doesn't quite like, yes, like learning the violin and being excellent at it. No, no offense to that. Like I think pales in comparison to somebody who shows up every single day and mixes it up with people from all different walks of life and is able to show up on time, be courteous, you know, treat customers with respect and somehow balance all of that with the academic rigors that are required. Like to me, that would be a more like if I were to predict who's going to be more successful in life, it's, it's the, it's the one who did the service job. And I'm hoping that colleges take these things more into account. I know that you follow college admissions a bit. It sounds like based on the anecdote you just shared that maybe they're starting to treat those types of experiences with a little bit more weight. They are. I can say with a fair bit of authority that they are sick of all of these lookalike candidates from affluent communities. They are sort of bored to tears and these kids are, you know, somewhat undifferentiated. Now, you know, what you said is right. And I think with each passing year, it becomes more right. The problem with saying it out loud and the reason why the colleges don't is that they're worried that, you know, if they do, that the next batch of applicants will include 500 kids who <laughs> yeah. worked at McDonald's. Yeah, you'll have like the Scarsdale kid who, who's working at Jack in the Box. It's wild. It is quite the game. Yeah, that's not what they want. And as a parent, that's not really what you want either. You want your kid to find something that they're passionate about, you know, and have that passion shine through in a way that, you know, makes them feel unique, you know, sort of packaging teenagers for the consumption of the college admissions industrial complex is something that, you know, just makes me queasy. And as, you know, more and more kids apply to the, you know, 25 or 50 most rejective schools in the country, I I think there's ever more attention being paid to that. And I don't know, it just makes my stomach hurt a little bit. Yeah, I'm with you. And you know, there's like practices for financial literacy and uh, intelligence. And then there are just concepts. So when you think about like the sort of key concepts, you know, something that kind of shines through in your book is like the, you know, what is needed versus what do you want? And what's the difference between those two things? Like, what are some other sort of concepts that you think are really crucial for parents to to instill in their kids as they go through the sort of financial literacy journeys? Yeah, so I think trade-offs is a big one. Even billionaires can't do everything and can't have everything, right? As the old Stephen Wright jokes goes, it's like, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? (laughs) Right. Um, But you also can't do everything because you have, you know, limited amounts of time. And, you know, in most households, spending on one thing means you can't spend on another or you have to wait. Right. And so, What I encourage, you know, you mentioned the billionaire at the top of the podcast. What I encourage people, you know, who are in the 1% to do is to, you know, think about a form of forced deprivation, right? Where maybe in the, you know, at the December holidays and for a kid's birthday, they get a bunch of things they want and you buy everything the kid needs with a conversation in each category about, you know, what the spending limit, you know, is going to be for basketball shoes or musical instruments or whatever. But everything else, maybe even the closing budget is is on them. 
And it's a reasonable amount of money so that they can get everything they need and some of what they want, but not so much that they don't have to make really hard choices all the time. Because that's what we grownups do. We're constantly making choices. We do it subconsciously, you know, I'd say a couple dozen times a day with our money, right? And so all this talk is really just like about practice, right? We want to give them thousands of opportunities to practice these decisions and these choices before we turn them loose in the world. So, you know, I think trade-offs is a, is a big one. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's transition to the second book that I wanted to talk about today, which is this book that you wrote called The Price You Pay for College. And, you know, what motivated you to make this the next book? Like, I mean, obviously you're almost going sequentially, right? You're, you start with kids in sort of in their sort of K-12 range. Is it as simple as you just wanted to continue with the sort of trajectory of kids and say, all right, what's the next major financial milestone in their lives? Yeah, I'd say that was, you know, half of it, right? When I was working on the opposite of Spoiled, it just became obvious to me that that book sort of needed to stop at 16 or 17 because all of the questions around college were so big and complicated and the numbers were growing so big that I was just confused, right? And I didn't think it was possible or proper to attempt to reckon with them in, you know, one final chapter. And so I just kept tossing all that stuff aside into a Google Doc, not knowing what I was going to do with it, but having a hunch that there was something there, right? And, you know, in my day job at the New York Times, I'm always trying to like live inside the three bubble Venn diagram where stuff with really high prices in really opaque or confusing markets overlaps with decisions that involve a lot of feelings, right? And college was like right in the middle of that, right? High list price, really confusing discounting and financial aid scheme, and parents and kids with like a lot of strong feelings about the importance of this and all of the sort of emotions that fall out of that. So that kind of emerged for me. But the thing that really kind of put it over the top and made me realize that the discussion needed to exist at book length, and there was a possibility of saying something new, was that my inbox was just getting stuffed with opposite of spoiled readers and New York Times readers who are all like, all you people there at the New York Times talk a really good game about how we live in the era of big data now. Right. And we're in a situation here where the 17 year old got into, you know, the University of Minnesota, right? Our state school. She even got into the honors program, right? That's going to cost us maybe $100,000. And then she got into this cool small liberal arts college called Lawrence University in Wisconsin, right? And there she'll be in a classroom with just like 18 people instead of, you know, 1,800 at the University of Minnesota. And that's going to cost $175,000. And she got all this merit aid. We don't even know what that is. Our college counselor didn't tell us what that is. But then she also applied to Northwestern. And wouldn't you know it? She got in, right? But we earn just enough money that we're not going to qualify for any need-based financial aid. And Northwestern wants $325,000 from us. So Ron, where is the big data set that explains to us why Lawrence is $75,000 better than the U and why Northwestern same Big Ten athletic conference is worth $225,000 more than the University of Minnesota. And I said to those families, I have no idea what the answer to that question is. There is no data. 
on it. And the more I thought about it, I realized there's no data because the schools like it that way. Yes. Because in the absence of data, people make decisions on the basis of big feelings. And that is unhelpful. And it is a sure path to error. It reminds me of the Obama administration attempt to rank the schools and give them ratings. And, you know, it's just such an underreported moment where the schools shut it down. And I think that would have been a step in the right direction. It wasn't sufficient, but it certainly was a necessary precondition, in my opinion, to helping parents make better decisions. Because I went for undergrad to SUNY Binghamton, which by any measure is, if there is a ranking, Obama, I think, announced that initiative at SUNY because SUNY has historically been an incredible deal. At the time I was going there, the tuition was like a few thousand bucks. And then if you add room and board, it's like 10,000 bucks a year. And there's all sorts of ways you can get additional help on that if you're in-state, obviously. And then you get really good schools, not like, you know, Ivy League, but like, you know, if you're trying to be a doctor, you're trying to be a lawyer, you're, you're trying to be a professional in any way, right? Like the Speaker of the House graduated from Binghamton, like... But like, if you get into Bing, like I got into Binghamton and I was like kind of a screw up in high school, but I, my guidance counselor was like amazed I got into Binghamton. Now, if I would have gotten into Binghamton and I would have gotten into Boston College, I would have absolutely done everything possible to try to convince my parents to let me go to Boston College. In hindsight, that would have been a truly insane decision financially. So tell me what you did. Like, how do you help parents make sense of this? What is the framework? Well, sure. I mean, to take your example as the primary one, one of the big feelings that often gets in the way of level-headed decision-making around colleges is snobbery and elitism, right? So if you'd gotten into BC, you know, you would have been tempted to go, right? Because private is better than public. And a Boston college, you know, bumper sticker or Instagram sweatshirt. Nicer buildings. Yeah, right. It's like ivy versus concrete. And, you know, Boston's a nice place to live for four years. Cities, you know, were on the rise when you were, you know, going to college and are on the rise even more now. You know, Binghamton is like, who can even find Binghamton on the map, right? Or, right, maybe you're calculating about this, right? Maybe you're not the snob, right? You're not the elitist. You're worried about all the snobs and elitists that are the gatekeepers in the marketplace for 22-year-olds, right? So you're worried that, like, if you want to go work for Morgan Stanley or whatever, like the snobs at Morgan Stanley are probably hiring more kids from Boston College than they are from Bing. Now, Morgan Stanley would not admit that. I tried to get them to admit it when I was reporting the opposite of spoiled. I said, show me the numbers, right? You say you're an egalitarian institution. I want to know how many more people you hire from Penn than Penn State. They would not answer the question. So, you know, this is real, a little bit at least, out in certain marketplaces for certain 22-year-olds. And so people maybe seize on that, right? So, you know, this is one of like a thousand different elements. But the first thing you have to do as a parent is get your emotions in check, right? You know, people have all of this fear that their kids are going to go tumbling down the social class ladder. You know, we're pretty much all immigrants, right? People clambered their way up, you know, over decades or generations, and they want to create some concrete floor through which their children cannot crash, right? So people are, you know, fear of falling. There's guilt, right? My parents did it for me. They sacrificed so much. I've got to do it for my kid no matter what it costs. There's also the cocktail party arms race, right? Like you want to be around your friends. I mean, this is a particular thing amongst 
immigrant communities like my 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 dad and you know the sort of Indian American community every every community has their own version of this but with the Indian American community there's nothing like saying you know I wound up going to Yale Law School like the, the sense that like my dad had that talking point was like he won the dad Olympics you know and he's just like that is like that is the thing you could just tell your friends and actually I have that pressure too because I'm like I don't want to let my dad down, you know, I want to give him that opportunity, right? And I think the schools trade in this sense of pressure that we all put on each other, right? They feed into it. They totally do, right? And now they would say, well, we're just responding to external market forces. And U.S. News and World Report rank schools in part on the basis of the percentage of kids that they reject, Right. So we're going to, you know, sort of pump up the denominator, you know, the number of kids who apply and we're just going to, you know, create more and more selectivity and, you know, prestige that way. And, you know, they sort of play along as opposed to opting out. But, you know, the other way this has come to fore, you know, since you and I were going to college is that they're doing it now much more with money. Right. Like 20, 30 years ago, the price you paid was based mostly on what you could afford, right? What you had in the bank, what you earned. If the school had funds available and not every school did, you know, you would get a discount according to your need. But what they realized 20 or 30 years ago, slowly and then seemingly all at once, was that they could sway people's decision-making and in effect buy better teenagers by throwing a bunch of money around and calling it presidential scholarships, right? So this was the phenomenon of merit aid, you know, that emerged 20 or 30 years ago, where people get discounts on the basis of what they have done more than, you know, what their parents earn or have. And it becomes its own form of prestige. And you can go run around as a parent and say, yeah, my kid is going to Hofstra and they got the presidential scholarship and that came with $150,000 in discounts over four years. That feels pretty good too. So tell me, walk me through this from a parent's perspective. Like I get into, you know, now that you've done the book, let's use that example, Binghamton versus BC. Like what do you put in the spreadsheet in this case? Like, and where do you go to for information? Because I imagine the, the price obviously is part of it. Where do you go for the best outcomes-based information? Like, this is, I think, essentially what the Obama administration was trying to do, to say, like, who's good at getting their graduates into the right kinds of jobs? And then I imagine you could take those two numbers and make something out of it. And obviously, you could add other numbers to it. But those are two big ones. Like, are you good at getting kids into the right jobs and or graduate schools? And how much does it cost, you know? And those two things are probably the most important pieces of information. Yeah. I mean, the pushback from schools, as you may recall, was that, you know, we are about so much more than whether you earn $62,000 or $46,000. And, you know, if you're comparing Binghamton to BC, BC probably graduates, you know, 88% of the people who start, you know, within six years. And Binghamton is maybe, you know, 78 or 82, right? So it's not that much less. And public schools are different from private schools. So, you know, they're starting maybe with different kinds of students. But I have some sympathy for university administrators who say that our school really is about so much more than just outcomes. 
I mean, my sense of it was that, you know, there are at least four things going on, right? People are shopping for the learning opportunities. They're shopping for the kinship opportunities, right? The opportunities to meet the friends who will carry them through life and the mentors. They're shopping for a job or credential, you know, that might help them, you know, climb the socioeconomic class ladder. And then they're paying for the party, right? College is a social experience. And, you know, the quality of lived experience over the course of four full years is meaningful, right? It should probably not be a zero part of the equation. So I make no judgment, right? So there's like four pieces of that pie. You've got to get your head straight as a parent when your kid is 16 or 17 about what exactly you think you're shopping for, right? Because if the most important thing is how much the kid learns because they know they want to go get a PhD in anthropology, then you're asking different questions of the institutions then if the most important thing for the kid is to create a huge social network and go to a lot of parties. And again, no judgments, right? But if you don't know what you're shopping for, you can't even begin to make the list of questions. So it kind of starts there. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I really feel for parents and it's, you know, you you talked about what are these sort of, you had that matrix for like why college was interesting to you. It seems like higher education and healthcare seem to be in a category of their own and maybe childcare, maybe childcare, elder care, college, and healthcare generally, like those being the kind of like the matrix of things that seem to be outpacing the already high inflation, a sort of scarcity. In some of those instances, the scarcity is a natural phenomenon. In some cases, it's artificial. Like at college, I would imagine it's artificial. Is there any movement in the alternative models? Like we've been, I've been looking at data from Todd Rose at Populous. If you ever look at that data, he basically looks at like revealed preferences. He kind of tricks people into saying what they truly believe. And basically what he picks up on is he calls them collective illusions was the name of his book. And there's like a collective illusion about how other people feel about college degrees versus how parents feel about it. And I think it might be the number one collective illusion he's found or one of the biggest collective illusions he's found. Essentially saying like parents care a lot less today about college than they used to and actually care a lot less about college than they think other people care about. And that data dovetails with explicit polling that doesn't do the reveal bias. It seems like college is becoming less and less popular. Are you seeing any movement in the numbers for college on that, like alternative models, like trade schools, or is it still lagging the the polling and expectations of parents? Yeah. So, right, you know, big movements in the poll numbers. What's actually happening on the ground is a little more confusing. The fact of the matter is, is that, you know, much of this is a labor marketplace phenomenon. Right. Either people are going to demand or prefer college degrees in, you know, white collar professions and, you know, even some blue collar professions now, or they're not. And so parents don't really get to decide. Right. And so, you know, every three months in my newspaper and others, you read yet another story about how IBM this time for real is not going to require college degrees from, you know, this or that set of jobs. But, you know, if you've been around the track as many times as I have at this this point, you remember the same story from 2014 and 2006 
1998. And the labor market hasn't really changed all that much. But the other thing that I think is important that we sort of figured out during the pandemic, but we were also so distracted that we didn't even realize it was happening, was that you know, all these kids came running back in the fall of 2020 to what were then deeply compromised institutions and experiences, paying full price for the privilege. So why did they do that, right? I mean, I'm sure they were sick of, you know, living in their parents' homes again when they didn't think they were going to ever do that again. And so that was probably a little part of it. But I think a bigger part of it is that we have just come to see the traditional residential undergraduate experience as being something like a rite of passage for you know, the roughly middle income segment of the population and above, right? And to kids, it feels maybe not so much like an entitlement, but something that they just always expected to do and are really looking forward to, right? So yanking that away and having large number of kids from that demographic or kids from the striving demographic where, you know, they would be first gen, but like have always seen it as a goal and their parents have seen it as a goal to just to have like a big chunk of the population just turn and do something else and go against the grain. I don't know. I mean, that's not something teenagers do very often, you know, or 20% of them just turn and march in the opposite direction. And college is a ton of fun and extremely formative. So, you know, I think it would take a lot to really shift the ground from underneath us in the way that I think a a lot of people on the right, frankly, are rooting for. Yeah, I'm wondering if over time there'll just be alternative models that can get at that feeling of camaraderie and rite of passage without being, number one, as expensive, and number two, don't necessarily need to be four years, right? Like, can you do... I mean, my perfect world is we have a service program in this country that puts people together to do things like teach and do social work and EMT jobs and the military and puts people together from different backgrounds. Now, some of those jobs require college, but I wonder if there's like a way you could do apprenticeship models where, you know, like if a kid has like a high GPA and they want to go into straight into medical school, for example, could you give them a year or two? of some kind of in-service training where we make them an EMT in a rural area that gets them right into medical school. Because like other countries, like my dad went to medical school when he was 17, right? There's like no need, there's, there's no reason why you have to do four years and spend all that money and then do another four and then do your residency. And then, you know, you're you're in their 30s until if you're a specialist until you're starting to make any real money. And you're $500,000 in debt. Yeah, right. So like, can we come up with alternative models like that? I think it's like, it's such an, it's so fascinating because in all, in most of these cases, it's like, you're asking the rich to give up their riches in the sense of the colleges. Like it's in their interests to have these gatekeeping mechanisms. Like law school should just be school. Like, why do you have to do four years of undergrad and then be a lawyer, right? Like medical school, you should be able to get there a lot faster. Like these are all things that often are unique to the United States. I'm glad you mentioned the international perspective because, you know, even in countries that look a fair bit like ours, you know, in much of Europe, undergrad is three years. It's not four. And you can go in three years if you go to school in some of those countries. And, you know, there are Americans who do that now in higher numbers than they used to, but it's it's not exactly a stampede. 
right? And so, you know, there are a few colleges that have experimented with three-year programs. And, you know, there's some people who get to state schools in particular with a bunch of AP credits, state schools being places that are more likely to accept those, you know, and they get through with three years. There are even three-year medical schools run. I think Einstein had it, at least when I was thinking of medical school. I don't know if they still have it. And could you imagine, just if you're thinking about, if you're like Elon, you know, when Elon Musk was at his best, right? He's like sitting on the factory floor trying to figure out the efficiencies. If I'm like, whoa, we have a doctor shortage and a nursing shortage. Well, how about this? What if we just got kids from 18 to being a doctor in three years? Can we do that as a country? And how many more hours of doctorness have we added to the system? I'd imagine a lot. And they have less debt. It seems like a no-brainer, you know? Yeah. So I'm with you. I mean, there are all of the obvious and I think some not so obvious entrenched interests kind of standing in the way. And some of them involve feelings just as much as they do practicalities. Yeah. Well, it's great to meet you, Ron. Likewise. Love your work. Love your books. Thank you. You want to just point people in the direction of you know where to find your books, where to find your course, where to find your work in the New York Times? Sure. So... My work at the New York Times is housed at nytimes.com slash Lieber. My books are at ronlieber.com. And for anybody who's interested in learning more about Meridade and the unpublished discounts that colleges provide to the affluent, you can check out my course at meritaidcourse.com. All right, Ron. Well, thank you so much, man. Thank you. Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. You could follow all of the Branch's podcasts at at the Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.